Hello and welcome to the Annals of Internal Medicine, February 18th, 2020 podcast. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, with quick highlights of what's new in the journal since our last podcast. Let's get started with an article on coronavirus published online first on February 5th. This article reports a disease model developed by researchers at the University of Toronto to provide insight into the changing nature of case finding and epidemic growth. Using data from publicly available case reports, the researchers developed a disease transmission model in which the 2019 coronavirus epidemic was modeled as a branching process starting in mid-November 2019 with an interval of seven days between cases and a basic reproduction number of 2.3 new cases from each existing case. They ran the model assuming no intervention and then compared the results to reported cases in the presence of control efforts. Comparison of modeled and reported case counts suggests that reporting lags are decreasing and case ascertainment is increasing over time. The narrowing gap between modeled and confirmed cases shows that the massive public health effort underway in China is increasing ascertainment of 2019 coronavirus cases. Large leaps in reported case counts represent both disease activity and a surveillance effort that is catching up with an epidemic. The authors provide a link to an online tool that they will continue to update as data accumulates. Undergoing hematopoietic stem cell transplant heightens risk for reactivation of latent cytomegalovirus in recipients positive for the virus. Preemptive therapy can successfully treat cytomegalovirus reactivation, although antiviral agents can have significant side effects. Consequently, there is still an unmet need for a durable approach to suppress both early and late CMV reactivation and its consequences. In a study reported in an article published online first on February 11th, researchers from cancer centers at City of Hope, Dana-Farber, and MD Anderson studied 102 CMV seropositive transplant recipients at high risk for CMV reactivation to determine the safety and efficacy of a triplets vaccine for reducing CMV complications. Participants were randomly assigned to either vaccine or placebo on days 28 and 56 after transplant. At 100 days, the researchers found that reactivation of CMV occurred in five triplets recipients and 10 receiving placebo vaccine. In addition, despite having transplant-induced weakened immune systems, Patients who received vaccine developed immunity against CMV that was more than 200% higher than those in the placebo group. The recipients reported no vaccine-associated adverse effects and transplant outcomes were similar in both groups. According to the authors, these findings suggest that the vaccine is a promising strategy for reducing CMV-related complications in patients following hematopoietic stem cell transplant. Next is a clinical trial that found that adding Maravarac to standard combined antiretroviral therapy does not improve clinical outcomes for patients initiating treatment for advanced HIV infection. One-third of patients with HIV in resource-rich countries are diagnosed late in disease. These patients with advanced HIV infection faced increased risk for AIDS-defining events and mortality due to opportunistic infections, which may be related to weakened immunity. Maraviroc, an antiretroviral drug with immunologic effects, was hypothesized to offer a potential benefit to such patients. Researchers randomly assigned 416 HIV-positive adults initiating treatment with combined antiretroviral therapy 
for the first time to combined antiretroviral therapy plus either placebo or Maraviroc for 72 weeks to assess the benefit of adding the drug to standard antiretroviral therapy. The researchers found that among persons diagnosed with advanced HIV infection in three European countries, the incidence of severe morbidity was 11.2 per 100 person years, and adding Maraviroc to the standard antiretroviral therapy for these patients had no effect on this. Maraviroc use was associated with higher risk for virologic failure at week 48, but not at week 72. The gain in CD4 T-cell count was similar in both groups throughout the study, but increase in CD4-CD8 ratio was lower in the Maraviroc group. The authors conclude that Maraviroc seems to show no clinical benefit for patients diagnosed with advanced HIV infection. Low-dose methotrexate is the most commonly used drug for systemic rheumatic diseases worldwide and the recommended first-line agent for rheumatoid arthritis. Despite extensive clinical use for over 40 years, virtually no data on adverse event rates derived from randomized placebo-controlled trials, where both causality and magnitude of risk can be inferred. The next article, published online on February 18th, reports a pre-specified secondary analysis of a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trial that aimed to investigate adverse event rates comparing low-dose methotrexate to placebo. Adults with known cardiovascular disease and diabetes or metabolic syndrome were randomly assigned low-dose methotrexate 20 mg per week or placebo. All subjects received folic acid 1 mg per day for 6 days per week. 4,786 patients were randomized after an active run-in period. Median follow-up was 23 months and median weekly dosage 16 mg. Of 2,391 subjects randomized to low-dose methotrexate, 87% experienced an adverse event of interest compared to 81.5% randomized to placebo. The relative hazards of gastrointestinal, pulmonary, infectious, and hemologic adverse events were elevated with methotrexate. With the exception of an increased rate of skin cancers, there was no difference between treatment arms for the risk of other malignancies, mucocutaneous, neuropsychiatric, or musculoskeletal adverse events and renal adverse events were reduced with low-dose methotrexate. Although the trial was conducted in patients without rheumatic disease who tolerated low-dose methotrexate during an active run-in, these data suggest that low-dose methotrexate was associated with small to moderate elevations in skin cancer and risk for gastrointestinal, infectious, pulmonary, and hemologic abnormalities, while renal events were decreased. However, it is important to note that the absolute difference in adverse event rates was very low. Insomnia symptoms are the most common sleep complaint among adults. Approximately 20 to 30 percent of adults in the United States have experienced insomnia symptoms. The prevalence of obstructive sleep apnea ranges from 9 percent to 38 percent. In September of 2019, the U.S. Departments of Veteran Affairs and of Defense approved a new joint clinical practice guideline for assessing and managing patients who have chronic insomnia disorder and or obstructive sleep apnea. The guideline development effort included clinical stakeholders and conformed to the Institute of Medicine's tenets for trustworthy clinical practice guideline. The guideline panel developed key questions, systematically searched and evaluated the literature, created three one-page algorithms, and advanced 41 recommendations using the GRADE system. The guideline synopsis summarizes the key recommendations of the guideline in three areas, diagnosis and assessment of obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia disorder, treatment and management of obstructive sleep apnea, and treatment and management of chronic insomnia disorder.
Successful payment reform requires strong incentives for provider organizations to limit healthcare spending. Global budget payment models, the most prominent of which is the accountable care organization model, seek to limit spending through risk contracts in which the provider organizations share savings or losses when spending is below or above a budget or benchmark. Much of the debate over how to strengthen these models has focused on specific terms of the payment contract. Often overlooked in the debate over how to strengthen global budget models is the fact that incentives to lower spending can differ markedly by organization type, even when the terms of the payment contract are the same. The authors of a commentary published on February 18th describe that understanding why incentives vary across provider organizations is critical for moving payment reform forward. Xanthalesmas are asymptomatic, benign, yellowish papules or plaques that appear on or around the eyelids, are composed of cholesterol-loaded macrophages, and typically appear in adulthood. About 50% are associated with familial hypercholesterolemia, and in such patients, regression of the lesions can occur with lipid-lowering agents. In patients with xanthalesmas and normal lipid levels, they can be removed with liquid nitrogen, topical trichloroacetic acid, laser ablation, or surgical excision, but these therapies all carry a risk of scarring, residual pigmentation, and recurrence rates of up to 40%. A case report published on February 18th describes a patient with normal lipid levels whose xanthalesmas regressed with statins. Most of the articles in the February 18th print issue were initially published online and highlighted in prior podcasts. New in the issue is a poignant on being a doctor essay titled Letter to a Burnt Out Intern. Also published on February 18th are the latest episodes of the Annals on Call podcast and Annals Consult Guides. The Annals on Call podcast addresses the question, are VA patients different? This month, the Consult Guides discuss bridging anticoagulation for patients with valvular heart disease who need to undergo invasive procedures. Finally, is Annals for Hospitalists. In addition to key points from recent articles of relevance to hospital medicine physicians, is a commentary on inpatient nutrition. That brings us to the end of this podcast. I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the articles I've mentioned. As always, there are ample opportunities to earn CME and MOC credit if you do. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Beth Jenkinson and Andrew Langman for their technical support.